This morning's passage, John Jesus, excuse me, gives us three critical answers to life's biggest questions. Three critical answers to life's biggest questions. Nicodemus is, as I said, a religious aristocrat. This man was a Pharisee, which means, of course, that he was very serious about his religion. The Pharisees were so earnest about their faith that on the Sabbath they would, wouldn't carry more weight than a dried fig or no more, no more milk than could be swallowed with one gulp. This isn't the kind of man, therefore, that plays games with his religion. He was also a ruler of the Jews. This probably means he was a member of the Sanhedrin. This group of 70, ma- 70 men basically had jurisdiction over every Jewish man of the day. They were the supreme court of the day, you might say. As a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus would have been regarded as one of the scribes. Jesus gets at this a little bit in verse 10 when he calls Nicodemus the teacher of Israel. We might say he was nobody's fool. Nicodemus was a man earnest in his religion. He was of high social ranking and he was highly educated. All of this, of course, makes him a very interesting case study in or for encountering Jesus. In verse 2, we discover that Nicodemus came to Jesus under the cover of night. No reason is given for this. We can only speculate as to why. On the negative side, it's possible Nicodemus came at night because he feared people might think he committed himself to this special teacher from Galilee. On the positive side, Nicodemus might have chosen such a time to be sure that their conversation was uninterrupted. This learned and perplexed man desired to have a probing powwow. Nicodemus opens the discussion in verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night, and he says to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus says, we know. Might be speaking on behalf of the Jews, very possible, or he might be speaking on behalf of the many who have believed, because we know previously in the previous verses that there were many that had believed in Jesus. And although Nicodemus' words are not offered in the form of a question, a question is certainly implied. Jesus, who are you? Are you a prophet? Still less, the prophet? Excuse me, I lost my place. What's lurking behind this admission is whether this man Jesus came from God. May he not prove to be the Messiah. Well, Jesus answers in verse 3. He says here, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And here we have our first critical answer to life's biggest questions, and it's this. Spiritual birth is a necessary event. Spiritual birth is a necessary event. I'm sure you've had crucial conversations in your life. You know the ones, the ones in which you mull over the words. Maybe you create an outline, you outline the points of the conversation. Maybe you even take notes into the conversation. You have an agenda in mind. I imagine Nicodemus had uh, the kind, this kind of agenda prepared when he went into this conversation with Jesus. He knew what the Scriptures said about the Messiah. 
He understood the ways that God's kingdom would unfold, at least he thought he did. He had confidence in his religion, and he found strength in his ethnicity. This response from Jesus shatters all that. Jesus strips him down and goes straight to the heart. He leapfrogs over everything. Nicodemus thought about his leapfrogs everything Nicodemus thought about his religion and introduces the most dynamic explanation. Jesus gives him, in just a few words, one of the highest truths available to man. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Man doesn't need a new or superior knowledge. He doesn't need a more difficult work to achieve. He doesn't need a certain national, denominational, or religious affiliation. What man needs, what you and I need, is an, is an entirely new birth. These words from Jesus shatter, once and for all, every human achievement. All the merit of human deeds and every energy of natural birth or station. Jesus doesn't speak of something we produce he speaks of something we undergo. For what did you contribute to your natural birth? Here's an attack on religiosity. No doubt an attack against Nicodemus. Did being an ethnic Jew give Nicodemus any advantage for the kingdom of God? Did being a Pharisee avail him anything? Did his notoriety for being a member of the Sanhedrin mount up to anything? Linsky writes, All of which he had built his hopes throughout a long, arduous life here sank into ruin and became a worthless heap of ashes. Nicodemus built his house on the sand, and Jesus' words, like a flood, swept Nicodemus away. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Morris writes, In one sentence, Jesus swept away all that Nicodemus stood for and demands that he be remade by the power of God. This is what it means to be born again. It's to be remade by the power of God. While this concept begins here with Jesus, it doesn't end with him. In fact, the idea of rebirth runs throughout the entire New Testament. You remember 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter continues in verses 22 and 23. We have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable. James, the half-brother, older half-brother of Jesus, he speaks similarly he brought us forth, he says, by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Paul calls us babes in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says we are a new creation. It's safe to say that the entire New Testament and the entire new covenant is laid on the back of this idea, the idea of the new birth. Fascinating that we would read Hebrews chapter 8 this morning. I mean, what is this word of the new covenant that we would be reborn, that Israel here would be reborn? I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. How is this possible outside of 
this kind of rebirth, this kind of transformation. Of course, all this is helpful and very important theologically, but I don't want to stray too far from our text. And so, it's enough to say at this point that what Jesus is introducing is the concept of being born again, and it is one of the most precious and critical doctrines of the Bible. Returning to our text in verse 4, Nicodemus says to him, this is Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I don't believe this response from Nicodemus is callous or dense. It appears he is merely trying to put a requirement. He has put, put the requirement laid down by Jesus into his own words. He's trying to understand it. At least that's how I take this question. I believe he is mind to mind with Jesus, and he's asking for a further in, uh, explanation. He needs enlightenment. Help me understand how this is possible. I like how Leon Morris puts it. He writes, A man, Nicodemus might have said, is the sum of all his yesterdays. He is a man, he is the man he is today because of all the things that have happened to him through the years. He is a bundle of doubts, uncertainties, wishes, hopes, fears, and habits, good and bad, built up through the years. It would be wonderful to break the entail of the past and make a completely fresh beginning. But how can this possibly be done? Can a physical birth be repeated? Since this lesser miracle is quite impossible, how can we imagine a much greater miracle, the remaking, the remaking of a person's essential being? End quote. In this sense, Nicodemus' question is not hopeless, but reflective, contemplative. How can a man be born when he is old? The response from Jesus gives us a second critical answer to life's biggest questions, and it's this. Spiritual birth is a true experience. Spiritual birth is a true experience. Look at verses 5 through 8. Jesus answers, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I believe the key to understanding these verses, this part here of Jesus' words, is determining what he means by born of water, and then trying to understand what Jesus means in using this analogy of the wind found in verse 8. On being born of water, Jesus says, of course, unless one is born of water, what does he mean by that? Well, one option is that he means natural birth. Some commentators, some writers say that's what Jesus means here. With this understanding, Jesus is saying, unless one is born natural, that is born of water, of course, we have to receive that birth, and of the Spirit, born spiritually, you might say, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here, the water in question might be a reference to the fluid that flows from the womb before childbirth. Maybe that's what Jesus has in mind when he says born of water. The problem with this view is that descriptions of natural birth are not spoken of this way in Jesus' day. There's really no evidence of speaking of natural birth this way. It would be much more natural if Jesus meant this to have said, 
that we, we are to be born of blood and the Spirit. It would have been a way of saying, speaking of natural birth in Jesus' day. Another option is water baptism. This is a popular interpretation, and those that argue this remind us of John the Baptist's ministry, which came before, which is spoken of before, and actually is spoken of again at the end of chapter 3. And so, John the Baptist is certainly in the context here, and so maybe Jesus is speaking of water baptism. Well, the major problem with the interp- this interpretation is that this would make water baptism a requirement of salvation, which I think is problematic. The simplest argument against this is found in Jesus' words to the thief on the cross. There are other arguments we could make, but it's a pretty simple one. Jesus says to an unbaptized man, today you will be with me in paradise. I think that's a pretty compelling argument. So I don't take this to mean natural birth, and I don't take it to mean water baptism. It seems to me that the best option is to take these two ideas, born of water and the Spirit, in parallel. That is, to see them as another way of saying born again. In this way, verse 5 is an expanded version of verse 3, which seems quite natural in the text. This would also give some strength to Jesus' words in verse 10, which I'll repeat a couple times here throughout this message. Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Jesus expects Nicodemus to understand what he's saying. The Old Testament uses the imagery of water and the Spirit to refer to spiritual renewal. So something that Nicodemus should have, should have had some idea of in his mind. Listen to the prophet Ezekiel. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Here he's speaking of Israel. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. That sounds like being born again. It sounds like renewal, spiritual renewal. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 27. Also, the Jeremiah 31 passage that we read this morning from Hebrews 8. Nicodemus should have had these things in his mind. Therefore, I think to be born again is to be born of the water and of the Spirit. Jesus explains the born-again nature further in verse 6. And that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Flesh can only produce flesh. Spirit, spirit. The statement is axiomatic. The statement is its own proof. A river cannot rise higher than its source. Flesh cannot rise to anything other than what is earthly. There is no evolution from the flesh to the spirit. If 10,000 births were to be had from sinful flesh, nothing but the same sinful flesh would be produced. And all would be without excess or access, excuse me, to the kingdom of God. You've heard of these chicken little stories? Maybe you've heard them before. There's one, one version of a chicken little, chicken little story. Uh, it goes like this. A man is traveling on the road on his donkey, and he came upon a small fuzzy object lying in the road. He dismounted. He took a look and found a small sparrow lying on its back with its scrawny little legs thrust toward the sky. You can imagine it. At first, he thought the bird was dead. 
but upon closer investigation, he found that the bird was, in fact, alive. The man asked the bird, of course, animals speak in these stories, the man asked the sparrow if he was all right, and the sparrow replied, yes, the man said, what are you doing lying on your back with your legs pointed toward the sky? The sparrow responded that he had heard the sky was falling, so he was holding his legs up to support it. The man replied, you surely don't think you're going to hold it up with those two scrawny legs, do you? The sparrow, with a very solemn look, responded, one does the best he can. But like that tiny sparrow, our best is never enough. What comes from a tomato is a tomato. What comes from a canine is, a can is canine. What comes from flesh is flesh. You and I need spiritual birth in order to see, in order to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus offers a caution in verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be, be born again. And then we have this analogy in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I told you that understanding what Jesus means in the use of this analogy is one of the keys to understanding our passage. And what I've already said in our outline kind of reveals where I'm at. Spiritual birth is a true experience. And that, I believe, is the point Jesus is making with this analogy in verses 5 through 8. Take the wind. You hear its sound. It's beyond question. While you don't know where it comes from or where it goes, you don't question its reality. Spiritual birth is as real as the mysterious movement of the wind. It's a true experience. You've heard of the church father, Augustine? I'm sure you have. What kept this man from coming to Christ was the idol of sex. Maybe you've read his testimony. It's in Confessions, his book Confessions. He fled from his home at a young age. His mother, Monica, never ceased to pray for him. It was at the age of 32 that Augustine, it was, uh, he was experiencing pain and longing because he was in the bondage of this lust that he was experiencing. He was engaged in a conversation with his best friend, Olympias, about the Egyptian monk named Antony. Augustine was overcome by the man's remarkable sacrifice and holiness. He wrote this in his book, Confessions. There was a small garden attached to the house where we lodged. I now found myself driven by the tumult in my breast to take refuge in this garden, where no one could interrupt the fierce struggle in which I was my own contestant. I was beside myself with madness that would bring me sanity. I was dying a death that would bring me life. I was frantic, overcome by violent anger with myself for not accepting your will, he's speaking about God, and entering into your covenant. I tore my hair and hammered my forehead with my fist. I locked my fingers and hugged my knees. I flung myself down beneath a fig tree and gave way to the tears which now streamed from my eyes. All at once, I heard a sing-song voice of a child in a nearby house. Whether it was the voice of a boy or a girl, I cannot say, but again and again it repeated the refrain, take it and read, 
take it and read. So I hurried back to the place where Olypius was sitting. I seized the Bible and I opened it. By the way, I don't recommend this. It worked in Augustine's case. And in silence, I read the first passage in which my eyes fell. Of course, it was Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I had no wish to read more and no need need to do so, for in an instant, he says, and I love this sentence, he came to the end of the sentence, as I came to the end of the sentence that was in that passage of Scripture, it was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart, and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. New birth. John Piper comments on that testimony, Augustine was born again. He never turned back to the old ways. The wind blew in the garden. It blew with a child's voice. It blew through the word of Scripture, and the darkness of his heart was dispelled. Although the wind is unseen, its effect is very much visible. And with those who are born again, the effects of the Spirit are visible in their lives. Even though the Spirit cannot be seen, it was possible that the winds of the Spirit were roaring in Nicodemus. And I believe and I hope it's possible that the winds of the Spirit are roaring in your life. We read the final words from Nicodemus in verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? How can this happen? Another how question from Nicodemus. He's like a man who's told to eat, yet he yields because he cannot see how the food is digested. The fact that the Spirit is at work, and it's the Spirit that knows just how, is not enough for Nicodemus. These words from Nicodemus may be a hurdle yet to overcome. It seems to be the case based on Jesus' answer in verse 10. Jesus answers him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Lenski again. Nicodemus laid the stress on the how instead of on the fact. He still let the mystery of the how block his joyful appropriation of the undeniable reality of the new birth. The question of surprise on the part of Jesus is meant to shake Nicodemus from his foolish how. In verses 11 through 15, Jesus will continue to shake Nicodemus's how. And here we have our third critical answer to life's biggest questions. First, we discovered that spiritual birth is a necessary event. Second, we discovered that spiritual birth is a true experience. And finally, we'll see that spiritual birth is, has excuse me, a universal redeemer. Now, I know you're looking for an E there, and I have one for you. He's a universal emancipator. Not a great word for an outline, I know, but you still have an E there. So he's our universal emancipator. In verse 11... We have for the third time, truly, truly, I say to you. Verse 11, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. In this verse, Jesus is affirming that his knowledge is firsthand. He is speaking of what he knows and not what he has seen. This born-again matter is not one of speculation. Jesus is not hazarding a guess. He is speaking with perfect knowledge and clarity. Therefore, the root of the problem is this. You do not receive our testimony. That's the problem. The problem is not one of understanding. It's one of volition. The problem is that Nicodemus is unwilling to accept He's unwilling to take it in. He's unwilling to receive the words of Jesus. Jesus provides support, support for his case in verse 12. He argues in this verse from the lesser to the greater. Verse 12, If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus confronts Nicodemus with a how of his own. And the implied answer to the question is this, there is no way. It's impossible. If Israel's teacher is stumbling over such a foundational truth that one must receive spiritual birth or renewal to be saved, how can Jesus reveal the more advanced teachings of the kingdom? And yet, Jesus does continue, gives us more. Nicodemus wants to know how these things can happen, and so Jesus tells him, these things, the new birth, happens only through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It was Jesus who came from heaven, which gives him license to speak of heavenly things. He was there. It was this Jesus who came from heaven and is the Son of Man. And again, as the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus should have known such a reference was from Daniel 7. He was the teacher of Israel. He should have known this. It was the Son of Man in Daniel 7 who was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, all nations and languages should serve Him. Which is the point that Jesus is about to make and one that will no doubt shake Nicodemus to the core. That all people, all nations, all languages would serve Him. Jesus, as I've said, is the universal emancipator. Verses 14 and 15 again. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so, much the, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. If we know our Old Testament Scriptures, we know that Jesus is referring here to Numbers chapter 21. There we read the account of the bronze serpent. We don't read, read this every day. It's in, like I said, Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. From Mount Hor, they came out, this is Israel, they came out by the way of, to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. You remember as Israel left Egypt, they went to the Edomites and they asked them, can we come through your land? And the Edomites were like, no, you can't come through. So they had to go around them. So that's what's happening in the context here. 
And the people, they spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against Yahweh and against you. Pray to Yahweh that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and Yahweh said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Fascinating, fascinating story indeed. It might be Jesus intends for us to draw out this analogy to some degree. Snakes being symbolic for sin. And as Moses lifted up the image of a serpent, it was Jesus that became sin or a serpent for us. Recall 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It was our Lord on the cross who took the sins of the world upon Himself and this symbolized by the serpent. All this is true. Certainly too much for Nicodemus to take in. But one thing he must do. There's one thing that he must understand. And it is really the focal point of Jesus' words. Verse 15, that whoever believes, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Numbers 21.9 says that if a serpent bit anyone, he would look, he would look up at that bronze serpent and he would be saved. He would live. What Nicodemus must understand, what we must understand, is the importance of the gaze of faith. Hughes writes, Moses raised that serpent up high in the camp and all the dying Israelites had to do was look at that pole and be saved. No matter how horrible they were bitten, no matter how many times they had been bitten or how sick they were, the opportunity for salvation was there. And he says, even the most degraded and miserable sinner who looks to Christ will be saved. End quote. And it's this gaze of faith that's universal. Although it was Israel that looked upon the serpent in Numbers 21, here Jesus says, whoever believes in him. As Jesus will explain in John 3, 16 and 17, and you know it well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Not just you ethnic Jews, Nicodemus, but that the world might be saved through him. Jew and Gentile alike, whoever believes, whoever gazes upon that pole will be saved. We can only imagine the assault this would have been against Nicodemus. 
Here was a man, Jesus, who proved himself to be from God. Nicodemus said that at the beginning. He was teaching that access to the kingdom of God is only available through spiritual birth. And not only that, but it's available to anyone with the gaze of faith. As we begin to close, I want to ask you to consider a, one last question, and it's this. How is the wind of the Spirit at work in your life? How is the wind of the Spirit at work in your life? Earlier, I shared a testimony from Augustine. The testimony of C.S. Lewis is quite different. You probably know Lewis is the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, other books as well. In 1931, Lewis was discussing Christianity with his friend, J.R.R. Tolkien. You probably know him as well, the author of The Lord of the Rings. This discussion would ultimately lead to Lewis's conversion, but in a very different way than Augustine. Lewis' rebirth lacks the emotion and struggle of Augustine's. Listen to how Lewis writes his testimony here. This is in Surprised by Joy. He says, I know very well when, but hardly how, the final step was taken. I was driven into Whipsnade one sunny morning. When I set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. And yet, I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, nor in great emotion. Emotional is perhaps the last word we can apply to some of the most important events. It was more like, and I love this, it was more like when a man, after long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he's now awake. What a fitting way to describe that. You're sleeping and you're awake. And it was, like that moment on top of the bus, ambiguous. Freedom or necessity, he says, or do they differ at their maximum? Some of us, like Augustine, are driven to madness in the moment of new birth. Others experience it quietly, maybe sitting on top of a bus to the zoo. Either way, the reality is staggering. Whether a rustling breeze, in Lewis's case, or a raging storm, in Augustine, nothing is more important than to say, I have been born again. Yes, but it's equally important for us to acknowledge that spiritual birth is a true experience. Like the wind that stirs the waves, Christ's Spirit will stir us to love and good deeds. Listen to the words that John the Apostle wrote in 1 John chapter 5. Same author, John knows about being born again, and he writes about it in his epistle, 1 John Listen carefully. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. There's the new birth. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? If we were to look at 
the letter, 1 John, is a kind of commentary on the gospel of John and this idea of being born again, we discover 10 evidences that prove spiritual birth is a true experience. Those who are born again keep God's commandments. Those who are born again walk as Christ walked. Those who are born again don't hate others but love others. Those who are born again don't love the world. Those who are born again practice righteousness. Those who are born again don't make a practice of sinning. Those who are born again possess the Spirit of God. Those who are born again listen submissively to the words of the apostles in the epistles and the New Testament writings. Those who are born again believe that Jesus is the Christ. Those who are born again overcome the world. It is indeed a true experience. Here's how this all works. Summary of salvation, you might say. You and I are brought into contact with the living and abiding Word of God. The gospel message, we hear it for the first time. We're brought in contact with it. Maybe we've heard it before, but we really hear it for the first time. When we come into contact with this message, when we hear it, the first effect of the new birth is that we see and receive God and His Son. We see it and we receive it. We accept it. We believe it. We see His work and His will as supremely beautiful and valuable. What are the illustrations that are given in the New Testament? A man finds a treasure in the field, and what does he do? He sells everything, and he goes and buys that field because he sees it as supremely valuable. A man that puts his, his, his hand to the plow, what, what happens if he looks back? He's not fit for the kingdom of God. Those, that's the kind of language that's used because it's so valuable that he never looks back. What, what is another illustration? A man who hates his mother. He hates his father. He hates his brother, which is a way of saying he loves his God so much that he's willing to take those those hard, make those hard decisions because God is, it means so much to him, you might say. Seeing God and the Son in this way is what faith looks like. This is the true experience of the new birth. And it's that faith that breaks the enslaving spell of the world. It's our faith then that leads us into obedience to Christ with freedom and joy using 1 John. Again, this is why John writes in 1 John 5, 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. It's our faith that overcomes the world. To overcome the world is to see the effect of the wind. It's moving and blowing, and it has a, it's a true experience in your life. You hate your sin. You repent of it. You move away from it. You embrace a new life. You put on the Lord Jesus Christ as that passage that Augustine read says. I'm not sure what questions you were asking this morning when you walked through these doors, and in one sense, it doesn't matter. Whatever question you're, answered, you're asking, Jesus has the final answer. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here's the greatest and highest priority of life, new birth. Tennyson wrote, Oh, for a man to rise in me, that the man that I am might cease to be. Here we have the heart cry of man. We desire change, to be different than we were yesterday. We want a new mind. We want a new way to be human. And here we have our answer. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so much, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. How is the wind of the Spirit at work in your life? Hughes again. Perhaps it's gently blowing, soothing your soul. From what you've heard, you feel affirmed. You are born again. You have turned from your sin, and the Spirit of God has washed you clean so that you have a new nature. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Is that true in your life? Praise God. Or, possibly the wind of the Spirit is raging in your life right now. You clearly see the non-negotiable. You see your sin and you are repenting. You desire the Spirit to rush into your life and make you a new person. You believe Christ is the answer. If so, why not yield to Him even this morning? Joel, service.